0: Did you know that the Harlem Renaissance, which spanned from 1918 through the mid-1930s, was a rebirth of African-American arts and culture centered in Harlem, New York? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about the preservation, creation, and analysis of Black voices with Black feminist community-engaged scholar, author, and university professor Dr. Tara T. Green on this episode of The Curious Professor. (laughs) mm <laughs> I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor Podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor Podcast, we'll explore the Harlem Renaissance with author and scholar Dr. Tara T. Green. But first, a trivia question Between 1910 and 1930, how many African Americans migrated from the rural South to the urban North and Midwest? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Tara T. Green on the show today. Dr. Green is a professor of African American and African Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where she teaches literature and black women's studies courses. Her areas of specialty include black parent-child relationships, black leadership and activism, and black liberation. Dr. Green is a prolific award-winning author. She is the author or editor of six books, two special journal issues, and over 20 peer-reviewed articles. Dr. Green was reared in the suburbs of New Orleans and has taught at universities in Louisiana and Arizona. She has presented her research to diverse audiences from local schools to organizations to corporations and at universities in Africa, the Caribbean, and England. When I learned about Dr. Green's unique background, my curiosity was immediately piqued and I wanted to learn more. I hope this interview with Dr. Green will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Dr. Green. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you. What's the most unique thing about you? I'm an only child and I happen to be... One of these individuals who her parents are from the South, but they moved to the North in the 1960s, really the 1970s. They married in 1969. And so what a lot of people don't know about me, because I tend to not talk about that part of my childhood, is that I actually lived the first seven years of my life in a little place called Waukegan, Illinois. So uh um, <laughs> So that may not be the most unique thing about me, but it's something that people tend to not associate me with that area.
0: Yeah, I went to Bradley University, which was in Peoria, Illinois, so I'm familiar with Illinois. Mm -hmm. On your website, you state that your Black Southern family immersed you in a culture of storytelling as a condition of your birth, and that your family inspired you to study the lives of Black folks through literature. Can you tell us more about your early influences and how they've impacted your work?
1: Really, my mother would tell me stories about her childhood growing up in in rural North Louisiana. It was a segregated place and they were quite poor. And so I also had somewhat of an appreciation for not only that culture, and this would would happen more so as I got older, but not only that culture, but I was fascinated by those stories, even though it was part of her childhood that she didn't particularly care for because the children had to work in fields as many poor people had to do in rural areas. My uncle was a part of that. So even now he's in his 80s. He'll be mad that if he listens to this, that I've I've said something about his age. But he is an individual that if we say anything about the past, his childhood, then he has a story to tell and they're always interesting and oftentimes they make us laugh. So I began to have an appreciation that I did not notice until I got to college that much of what I was reading in African-American literature seemed familiar to me and I wanted to dig around and to know more. So how do you
0: think storytelling impacts the black experience?
1: Well, you know, historically, for those who are descendants of enslaved people, telling stories, of course, was what people had to pass down histories that may have been taken away from them because their families were were pulled apart. And so, how do you know a name? How do you know what happened to someone or or where are you from by Telling the story. So that's part of it. And storytelling is certainly quite central to any number of cultures. So it's not specifically unique to African Americans, but it's certainly important in the sense that once you begin to write those stories down and to reimagine the past, how the story is told becomes really important because the story, in fact, is told. So silences have worked as well in the telling of stories, but writing also empowers those whose names that we may have forgotten but we still need to remember.
0: You state that you write about Black people, Black family relationships, Black leadership and activism, Black performance, Black Southern life, from the perspective of Black feminism. And as a Black feminist scholar, you state that you agree with Professor Bell Hooks that your lived experience directly challenges the prevailing classes sexist, racist, social structure, and its concomitant ideology. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Well, certainly, I think that what Dr. Hooks was speaking of, certainly what I understand it through my experience, is that I am not supposed to be here. So that my body is supposed to be here as a laborer, but my body connected to a mind and to a spirit, to a soul, is not supposed to be here. And so the fact that I exist as one who can have an impact on generations to come as an African American literary scholar and a professor, I have a kind of power and responsibility. And it's it's something that I take seriously in the classroom, but I also take seriously in my writing.
0: And speaking of your writing, I'd like to talk about Alice Dunbar Nelson. Uh, She was an American poet, journalist and political activist and was a prominent figure in the Harlem Renaissance. You wrote a book about her called Love, Activism and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. What got you interested in her life and work?
1: Well, Alice Dunbar Nelson is from New Orleans, and she graduated from Strait University, which merged with another university to become Dillard University. And I was an English major at Dillard University when I first read her work. Her description of New Orleans was one that was not familiar with me, but through the class discussion, I realized that there were remnants of what she described as part of what I had come to know, but just simply had not paid much attention to. It also gave me a perspective on history that I didn't know anything about until I went to Dillard University, which is a small liberal arts historically Black university in New Orleans. So I can still remember what it felt like to learn from Literature and that excitement, but feeling a kind of connection because she was someone who generations passed, I was sort of not standing in the space because Dillard isn't where straight was, but I felt a kind of connection to her. As an English major, I wasn't sure yet what I was going to do with that degree, but she was also an English teacher and I inspired to be some kind of writer. And so her presence then gave me inspiration.
0: What can we in 2022 learn from
1: her life and work? Oh, so much. Well, first of all, she is somebody who is celebrated by queer writers Oftentimes when you do a Google search of her, she is listed on Black queer writers' websites. So so that's one. Now, was she able to be publicly open about the relationships or her attractions to women? No. So then we can also understand the long history of, of getting to where we are now. And sometimes I imagine if she would have written an editorial, how she would have responded to same-sex marriage being, being legal in this country. Also, the fact that for her entire life she was interested in politics and political power not specifically for black people which was important but for women and as a black woman what that meant to her and so she was a suffragist she was also an individual who advocated for certain people to win office and when they didn't win office or when they did win office as whether they were Democrats or Republicans because she she was in both parties. If they didn't do what what she expected for them to do, she took them the tap, and so we see that now. We see how Black women have been engaged. That's that's actually not new. That's been since really the. Uh, very early years, certainly the late 1900s in the South in particular, in other parts of the country also. But um, she was a Southern woman who was an actor in activist movements in the Northern part of the country. So her engagement with political politics is something that we see happening right now. I mean, (laughs) literally If, if someone turns on CNN, they will see that the specific debate is about uh, President Biden and a Black woman being nominated for the position on, on the next position that's going to be open on the Supreme Court. And I imagine her writing about that. I imagine her being very vocal about who that person should be.
0: And do you have an opinion about who that person should be?
1: No, I don't. I've, I've been watching. I'm interested in some of the debates that are taking place and some of the information that's coming out about those individual women. But what I am confident about is that Whoever gets it will be somebody who is highly qualified and experienced for that position. There's no doubt in my mind about that.
0: So the Harlem Renaissance is considered to have been a rebirth of African-American arts in the 1920s and 30s. Yet some would argue that the Harlem Renaissance never ended, but it has continued to be an important cultural force in the U.S. What do you think?
1: Well, for Alice Dunbar Nelson, when she enters that space, she has already been a writer, a published writer, who is highly influenced by Victorian morals and values. So she's older, and she is engaging as the Harlem Renaissance unfolds, where we are beginning to see Black people on the stage more, and writing plays. The technology that exists for films, Oscar Micheaux's films become popular, and she's writing about all of that, and she's excited about it. Would I say that the Harlem... Renaissance was an actual era period, I I would say that because since then we've had other eras or periods, but certainly, and and not all of them are named, I just want us to be clear about that. So not everything exists in the textbook. But I think that we have seen other kinds of renaissances where people, where Black artists are moving past boundaries because that work is still having to happen. We have popular people now, but we have to understand that it's been a long fight for the individuals that we see who are making films now, or the paintings or the poetry and so on. And so she was able to capture a particular moment. And we have many people who capture that moment through podcasts like this one, blogs, and and certainly we still have editorials that exist in papers. So she was an early part of that and we have been able to see some changes along the way.
0: Your book, A Fatherless Child, Autobiographical Perspectives of African-American Men, focuses on the impact fatherlessness has on prominent men like Barack Obama, Langston Hughes, Malcolm X, and Richard Wright. Can you tell us more about that work?
1: Yeah, the opening line of that book is actually a quote from one of my cousins. And so that was a book that really kind of, it attempts to capture a voice of Black men. It was inspired by black men that I knew who all seemed to have something in common, which was that their father just wasn't around for any number of reasons. With Malcolm X, of course, his father was killed. It may have been divorce or something to that effect. With Barack Obama, of course, his father moves back to Africa, to Kenya you know, specifically. So in their memoirs, they capture what it meant to have these estranged relationships. Relationships with their fathers for whatever relationships that they had with their fathers. And I wanted to capture that because normally within African-American literary studies, we would talk about the mother and child relationship. So you blame the parent that's around. But what happens if there's a parent who, for whatever reasons, either chooses to not be around or they can't be around? So I wanted to do that work.
0: You also have a book called See Me Naked, Black Women defined Finding pleasure during the interwar era. Can you tell us more about that book?
1: Yes, in fact, I just received my author's copies today. A couple of hours. That's exciting! Yay! Yes, it is. And it is in conversation with the Love and Activism book. In fact, the title See Me Naked comes from a quote. It's it's a sort of paraphrase of a quote in Alice Dunbar Nelson's diary where she talks about she goes somewhere where, where no one can see me naked. And so it's about how these Black women define pleasure during a particular time, the interwar era. So we are talking about 1917 to the early 1940s. And so what did that mean for people like Lena Horne, Moms Mavely, Memphis Minnie? uh, Memphis Minnie is a blues singer. A lot of people don't know who she is. And also the daughter of W.E.B. Du Bois, Yolanda Du Bois. So these were public figures that people knew. And I was interested in how they tapped into pleasure, how they defined that for themselves in such a way that it was perhaps in defiance and definitely in resistance to what society may have wanted them to be as women. And I just, I learned so much. I just had gotten to the point where I I had been writing for 10 years about Alice Dunbar Nelson, who had been a woman who gave so much to the up, gave so much of herself to uplifting the race. So she, the community and the race was really important to her. What if the community and the race became, was something that was second to women? What did that look like? And so that's why I wrote that. All okay. right. Sort of companion piece or part two.
0: I noticed that you did a presentation for high school students called "Drawing Inspiration from Black Leaders." What Black leaders do you find most inspirational?
1: Well, at the time I did that presentation, I I can't remember. I've done so many presentations that may have been looking at people whom kids would have known about at the time. So I I probably was talking about Barack Obama as as one of them. Usually, when I try to do a presentation, though. I want to talk about who the children don't already know about. So I'm not very likely to do a presentation on Martin Luther King, even though a lot of people really don't know much about Martin Luther King, which is unfortunate because, you know, he has all this work and so much work has been done about him. So it's, it's important to actually do the study. However, I may look at Uh, Rosa Parks, because people, well, she's the woman who didn't give up her seat on the bus. Okay, well, what else can you say about her? And and what does that mean anyway? So (laughs) I like to take back to that day and to talk more about her biography. I try to look at women as much as possible, because Black women tend to be left out of conversations about heroes and leaders. So Alice Dunbar Nelson tends to be somebody that I talk about as much as I can as well. So I try to go back as far as I can and come up as much as I can. Even Michelle Obama, I may talk about more also. And what new projects
0: are you most excited about?
1: Right now, I am working on a book of essays that looks at gender and race. I think that there's much to pull from. So I've been taking notes. I haven't been writing as much. I've been taking notes and thinking through it and and reading and processing because the past five or six years have have been interesting times (laughs) politically as well as socially because of COVID. And so as we are now in perhaps another era, I'm not even sure what I would call it, but it'll certainly reflect on some of what has taken place over the past few years. Is there anything
0: else you'd like to tell us about you or your work?
1: The only thing that I would say is is I hope that people will look at the work that I've done and find it interesting. I try to engage as much as possible with looking and thinking about history as something that didn't just happen then or that it's in the past, but it is still present with us today and that it has an effect on us in the future. So I hope that people will check it out and that they'll enjoy it. And where can listeners find out more about you? My website is com. It was great to have you on the show, Dr. Green.
0: Thank you so so much for being a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. Thank you. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. Between 1910 and 1930, how many African Americans migrated from the rural South to the urban North and Midwest? During the Great Migration from 1910 to 1930, about 1.6 million African Americans relocated from the rural South to the urban North and Midwest to seek employment. This movement was instrumental in the creation of the Harlem Renaissance in New York. We'll end the show with something punny. How do college professors get to the university? They take the Scylla bus. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Curious Professor Podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to The Curious Professor Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.